welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Are you vaccine hesitant? I want to get ahead of this story in Canada. Many people are. Learn more from a man who has gotten his first shot, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Also, are you an approachable adult? If you don't even know what I'm talking about, you best stay tuned as Mary Sogstad, sexual health educator and registered nurse, explains. Someone said to me that we all have low-grade depression. How are you doing in the pandemic? I've invited psychiatrist Dr. Karash Adelati, who'll talk to you about sadness and solutions. And how well do you sleep? Did you know that the amount of sleep you get each night may impact your sex life. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Question of the year. Have you gotten your vaccine yet? Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to your overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and of course, host of this program. Good evening, Leo behind the boards. How are you doing? Hey, hello, Maureen. Good tal, good tal, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> everyone out fine. there in Radio Land. Yeah. Have you taken your meds today, Leo? <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm not on meds right now. Right now? No, yeah, I'm kidding. You can recommend me something if you want. <laughs> it is Oscar night. It's an exciting night. <laughs> yeah, they're just announcing best picture right now oh are they are they mm, no we don't want to give it away we yeah. don't want to give it away just yet right you want me to do breaking news no <laughs> anyways a little bit of a different oscar year this year and and uh it's been a little bit of a different year of course i uh if you'd like to be a part of the show please give me a call the number to call is one 9898 that's one 9898 you can text me there as well or email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com although we cover a variety of health subjects on the show the show is not a replacement for a virtual visit or a phone call to your doctor tonight in the program we have lots to dis- to talk about are you an askable Adult. Well, if you don't know what an askable adult is, you will find out tonight. So hopefully you'll stay tuned. Also, we're all suffering in this pandemic with uh, somebody actually said we all have a low grade depression. And I don't think that's too far off, quite frankly. I've invited psychiatrist Dr. Koresh Adelati to talk about sadness and the solutions that you can do. Um, Also, how well do you sleep? Did you know that the amount of sleep you get can impact your, you heard it, sex life. Um, So we're going to be talking about that. Also, should pregnant women get the COVID-19 vaccine? Anyway, lots to talk about on the program tonight, but right now. And now Maureen's Health Headline. Joining me on the line this evening, somebody with a bit of news himself. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical, Microbiology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, Canada. He holds a Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Re-Emerging Viruses and is currently seconded. I believe that might be over, though. But he has been collaboratively working to advance research and development against COVID-19. He is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, and he's on the line from Manitoba. Good evening. Dr. Kinderchuk. How you doing, Maureen? I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? Yeah, doing doing okay. Was uh, yesterday was a bit of a struggle. Uh, today, you know, it's still a little little bit a uh, little bit under the weather, but uh, cer- certainly uh, you know c- coming around. So. What and why would that be? <laughs> uh, why would that be? That is because I hit the age bracket for uh, for vaccination this week. Fantastic! And so you were vaccinated yesterday. 
Uh, Friday morning. Actually. Oh, Friday morning. Okay. Yeah. And you're still feeling a little bit under the weather. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not that surprising, right? I mean, I, you know, we've talked to uh, my, uh, my better half sister and brother-in-law today, and they had just gotten vaccinated yesterday in, in Toronto. And, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, comparatives between how we're feeling. And listen, this is, this is part and parcel of getting vaccinated, right? We, we can't sugarcoat it and say, listen, you, you are not going to have any sort of a response. Everything's going to be normal. Well, I, I was tired. I, you know, certainly, you know, my joints hurt a little bit. It was a, a bit tough going uh, to, uh, to work out in the basement last night. But, uh, you know what, it's, it certainly is a lot better than, than getting COVID and, and certainly a lot better than, uh, you know, than, than worrying about transmitting uh, in the community. So It, it certainly is. And, and not everybody will get uh, even in feeling as, uh, as unwell as you did. I mean, I had my vaccination I w- uh, as a healthcare worker and patient facing. Um, I've had it. I had it a little while ago. And I all I had was if I pressed on the injection site, yep. I could have a little tenderness. But otherwise, I had absolutely nothing. And so some people may not experience side effects, and whereas other people, it might put them down for a day or two. Absolutely, right? And it goes back to this idea that listen, our, our immune systems are not homogenous across each person, right? We, we are all variable as individuals, and certainly our immune systems are the same way. And, and listen, I, you know, my, my better half and I were in the, uh, the same lab for a little while. Um, certainly, we, we know what our, uh, you know, uh, peripheral blood uh, leukocytes, what, what our cellular responses look like, uh-huh. because we looked at them in, you know, in, in the lab in an investigation. And I'm a strong responder, and, and she is not so much. So, so that's, that's just differences in, in our biology. Does it have anything to do with blood type? Uh, you know what, I think there's still a little bit unknown about that, right? And, and that goes back for, you know, I think it's got to be about six months now where people were looking across blood types. And I, I don't think we certainly haven't seen any sort of uh, nail in the coffin yet to say exactly whether or not there's uh, a direct linkage there. Because there has been some uh, talk about it, as it relates to contracting COVID-19 that people mm-hmm. with type O blood uh, are less likely to contract it versus somebody with type A blood, I think. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, this is one of the confounding things about COVID, right, is that when we, when we look back now, Certainly, the you know even the data way back in you know, January 2020 or 20 uh, yeah 2020 when people can remember back that far you know we, we had this impression certainly that you know it was something that did just infect uh, and, and cause disease in, in certainly in older individuals and those in high risk groups and listen I think the tables have kind of turned on that right where we're seeing those differences coming up as the virus is spread out uh, you know across the globe and and that's going to continue to come up we will find more differences as as we continue to look. Of course we will. And, you know, I, I want to get ahead of this story a little bit. Um, looking to the U.S., who has gone great guns with vaccines, uh, many states are at a place where the uh, supply uh, exceeds the demand for vaccines now. I think they're at uh, about 30 percent of the country has had double vaccinations and uh, another 5 percent have um, have had uh, one vaccination, but they're actually seeing um, some vaccine hesitancy because people are nervous of the side effects. They don't trust the vaccine. They don't believe that the vaccine works and people are skipping their second dose of the vaccine. And I've actually heard this myself, even from some friends who have said, I'm vaccinated, I'm all good, I'm fine. And they've had one dose. So yeah. how important is that second dose? And um, how, what are the risks versus the benefits of vaccine over disease? 
Yeah. So if we if we just go to this whole idea, first of all, of, of herd immunity and this idea that, OK, if we hit 60 to 70 percent, everything goes back to normal. Well, the problem is when you look at the actual equation for, for, for estimating herd immunity, that, of course, is dependent on the, the transmission, the, the R0 value for, for the virus. Well, the variance of concern have changed that. And certainly even just variables in our communities change that value. Um, you know, so as we've seen, you know, more transmissible variants, uh, certainly things like B117 moving through the community, now that herd immunity value starts to rise higher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this is why it becomes so important, because we can't just say, OK, here's a here's a blanket value. Once we hit that, we're all fine. No, it's actually a lot more intricate than that. And and there certainly are suggestions that, listen, we we will probably see this go to being an endemic virus, um, which means we will probably not get to a point of true herd immunity, but our vaccination will keep transmission at a minimum. And certainly, uh, you know, as uh, you know, as we identify pockets of, uh, of infections, we should be able to, to control those. But all of this relies on getting that blanket protection in the community. So you have a bubble around those cases as they show up. So things like measles, where we may see local outbreaks in, in places where there, there is hesitancy um, or, or low vaccine coverage, but we don't see broad transmission because we have a good surrounding bubble of, of vaccines. That, that's, I think, what we're trying to aim for. But remember, we're learning on a moment-to-moment basis with this virus. You know, it makes no sense to me, um, and with all due respect to people who don't want to wear a mask and don't want to be vaccine, uh, or vaccinated, sorry, um, that they're doing it in a way because they want to keep their businesses open. You know, it's tied to the economy or their economy. Um, yet the only way to really open up the economy is to vaccinate people and, and wear masks in the meantime while we're doing so. Well, I, I agree. And I think, you know, if we want to look at, at two stellar examples where, where you know, vaccination and broad vaccination in the communities have, have turned the tide around in, in regards to transmission, look at Israel, look at the mm-hmm. UK. Mm-hmm. When we look at the, the tie in between restrictions and as well, broad vaccination programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there are any clear examples that we could have right now. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. My guest is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, all things COVID. Um, if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Dr. Kinderchuk, I have a text for you. I didn't want to ask this question, and I'll, I'll explain why, but here's the question. What, or here's the text. What brand of vaccine did the doctor do? Do you want to share that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's absolutely fine. So, uh, listen, uh, Saskatchewan, um, you know, has, has really not had that many options available. Uh, so I, I basically took my appointment not knowing what I was going to get, and they ended up giving me Pfizer. They gave you Pfizer. Um, they gave me Pfizer. You know, there, there are people who um, have, are declining particular vaccines, um, yeah. in part because of a PR issue uh, with AstraZeneca and the pauses by the FDA. Um, you know, they've put AstraZeneca and J&J on pause, uh, but now they've lifted the pause and they've added a warning. Um, but, uh, of course... I am giving vaccines and, and I see some people are like, you know, which one am I getting? And, you know, you say the Pfizer, because that's a bit of the workhorse here. And, and they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm so glad. You know, um, why is getting whatever vaccine you're offered important in this pandemic, in this situation we're in, especially as we look to places like India, who thought the pandemic was over and lifted restrictions and even allowed huge Hindu festivals to occur. Um, what, uh, why is it important to take what you can get? 
Yeah, the, the, the important reason is it's, it's really twofold, right, with, with the data that we're getting. First of all, the, the vaccines, the, the original clinical trials, the endpoint was always reduction in severe illness. And, and all the vaccines across the board have been unequivocally good in being able to reduce either fatal infection or severe infection, whether it was AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, even Novavax, the, the preliminary data has looked good. So that, that's part of it. Well, the other part of it is now we're getting more data to suggest that, in fact, the idea of being able to be infected after you've been vaccinated um, may actually be something that that is actually controlled very well by the vaccine. We're seeing that, uh, you know, certainly there's there's evidence of decreased infectivity and uh, and that would ultimately lead to, to de- decreased transmission. So all the things that we'd hoped for in the vaccine um, we've gotten, which was the protection from severe disease. But we're also getting that added bonus that we didn't know if we were going to get, which was the reduced transmission. So if we think about vaccination, it's not only now about us protecting ourselves from severe disease, it's actually helping protect that additional transmission in the community. And if we want to get out of this hole faster, the best way we can do this is to get vaccinated. And what was AstraZeneca's big mistake there? <laughs> uh, where, where do we start with that? Right. <laughs> it's been communication, right? Yeah. It, it, and I think this goes from from the get-go with the original clinical trials and, and the concerns with, with how they had structured uh, those trials and submitted the data and uh, and obviously the uh, you know the final data uh, submission to uh, to FDA. Listen, it's been a bit of a marketing nightmare, and that's the problem for us. Is that I I had actually wanted to get the AstraZeneca vaccine and hoped that I was going to get it mm-hmm. because of the fact I wanted to take away some of that you know kind of mysticism of of AstraZeneca to say yes, it is fine, it is safe. Mm-hmm. We're not unfortunately in that position. I think for for us, it really is this idea that. If we're given a vaccine, all of them across the board have worked very well. We will see results the more people that get vaccinated. I'll, I'll let my husband do that for you. <laughs> he got the AstraZeneca. <laughs> so, and it was fine. I said, just get in there and get whatever you can. Um, because it's so important to be vaccinated. And people come up with these wild ideas why they shouldn't get, or, you know, the AstraZeneca. They, you know, they don't even know how to pronounce it. And yep. I feel like if you don't know how to pronounce the vaccine, you don't have, you don't get to actually decide whether you get that one uh, or not. Um, do, uh, we have um, a question. We have a caller on the line. Just one sec. Do we have a caller? Is that Benny? Benny from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Yes, uh, I'd like to ask the doctor the question. What is the holdup for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to be distributed in Canada? And are there any other companies coming on stream with vaccines? Because we need to vaccinate the whole world and three companies at the present moment is just not good enough. So if we can answer that question, I appreciate it. Thank you. Great question. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question, Benny. So, so J&J, I don't know where we're sitting right now with, with getting those, uh, those vaccines uh, dispensed out into the community. And hopefully it's going to be soon. I mean, ultimately, any vaccine that we can get out to, uh, to Canadians right now is going to help us get through this faster. And in particular, uh, a single shot where you don't have to worry about people coming back for that subsequent dose. Certainly for additional vaccines, Novavax would be the next one. It's a protein subunit vaccine. Uh, that is one of the ones that, uh, that I believe that they're looking at uh, trying to get uh, additional manufacturing done. In Canada, I think they will probably be the next thing that we see um, approved. For the rest of the globe, this is the biggest question, right, is how do we get vaccines out to places like India or out to Brazil 
um, and, and others, certainly Turkey even as well, has been you know hit abnormally hard with this uh, additional wave. We need to be able to do that. And we're again reliant on a limited uh, amount of manufacturing. Certainly Rwanda has actually put in to, to try and, and build some, uh, some mRNA manufacturing capacity in country in Africa, which would be a, a game changer. But that's going to be down the road, right? So here and now, I think for us, it's, it's about getting these doses. And certainly, if we're not going to use them and, and we don't need them for our public, let's get them donated as quickly as possible. We, we should not even be hesitating at this point. And uh, I also have another text here, Keith and Lindsay. I had the AstraZeneca vaccine on April 3rd. I start dialysis this week. What do you think of getting a different second shot, a mix like they are doing in France and the UK, those mix and match? Yeah, you know, I just talked to actually a colleague about this uh, the, the other day. And listen, I, I think many people are of the mindset that the likelihood is we will see, uh, you know, a mix and match that's approved, certainly as we go out globally uh, to, uh, to resource limited settings. Um, right now, we have not seen the approvals yet. I think a lot of that is because the trial data has been limited. I think we'll be okay certainly based on, on what they're using for the, uh, you know, for, for the antigen, for the vaccines from the virus. But I think we, we need to have that data to ensure that people are actually getting um, you know, a, a good option here for vaccines uh, without us finding out after the fact that, that, in fact, this was not a great strategy. Dr. Kinderchuk, I could talk to you all night about this subject. There's so many. Thank you so much once again. I hope you'll be back next week. In the meantime, get better. Always a pleasure, Maureen. Thank uh, you. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you for tuning in this evening. I'm very excited about my next guest. We speak the same language, approachable adults. My next guest is a registered nurse and a sexual health educator who is offering an approachable adult Zoom workshop to parents and caregivers, childcare educators and teachers and youth workers. She will explore with you the topic of children's and youth sexuality as it relates to intimacy identity, reproductive health, sexualization, and sensuality. And she joins me on the line. She is Mary Sogstad. Good evening, Mary. Good evening. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, well, thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge and the information about these workshops, which are going to go on between April and June. Um, I understand. So the April series is April 18th uh, and April 28th. So we have one coming up this week. So the other one has already passed. <laughs> <laughs> and the May right, series, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're on. You're coming on late. I know we talked about it before. Uh, May is May 16th and May 26th, and the June series is June 6th and June 9th. Um, so, Mary, what is an approachable adult? An approachable adult is somebody who is fully present. So, somebody who is actively actively listening without thinking of a response while the other person is talking. Somebody who is respectful and kind. So somebody tries to understand somebody else's values and beliefs while simultaneously respecting your own values and beliefs, and somebody who tries to connect. So somebody their stories and tries to find a common ground. It's not really my idea, these three um, sort of ingredients. I actually got the idea of bringing these three ingredients to every conversation while listening to CBC's The Tapestry one day when Imam Jamal Rahman from Seattle was a guest speaker. And for me... It really resonated to me, these three ingredients, because as an emergency nurse and a reproductive nurse and working with different patients, I work with so many people and care for so many different people, even when sometimes I may not agree with the choices they make in their life. And I had to find a way to be approachable with my patients because I have so many tasks to carry out 
in so little time. And I have to find a way to influence my patients to allow me to do my tasks on my schedule and that they're okay with it. And so I bring these three ingredients with me to work. Um, and, of course, to my child and, and as an educator. And I think of a patient I took care of once who was in terrible amount of pain. Uh, she had stomach cancer, and I had to escort her to an ultrasound. And ultrasound can be an emergency nurse's worst nightmare because it can take about an hour and we have so many things to do. However, it can be quite nice because it also gives us a break. And I had a choice in that moment. I could have chosen to use that moment to sit and rest and perhaps check my emails on my phone or I could have paid attention to the needs of this patient. So I decided to bring these three ingredients to this moment and decided to massage this person's feet to help manage the pain. And this is when my, my, my patient's face just softened in that moment. And I realized this is when the approachable adult is. It's somebody who's really present and in the situation and can really help manage the situation and, and can help somebody feel better about their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally relate to that because in my clinical practice, often um, mostly people present uh, with sexless marriages and and they'll come in saying, you know, I'm in a sexless marriage. Can you help me to have sex with my wife or my husband or whatever, uh, partner, whomever? Um, and it's really about hearing their story. It's really about sitting down and, and listening and absorbing. And, you know, it's like an onion, you know, you peel back one layer. It's never about, I'm in a sexless marriage and here's the panacea for you. Um, this is oftentimes about addressing medical, uh, conditions or addressing past trauma. Um, but whatever their story is. And, and, you know, everyone has a story and that's so important to share and for the person, the uh, clinician to hear or or the partner or whomever that is um, in that person's life. So you're bringing this um, philosophy to educating our children at a very young age um, about, you know, pretty adult subjects, if you will. But so how is it that, um, why is it important that we educate young children in these um, particular subjects? Well, young children, they're so curious and they, they want to know about their bodies. Actually, the human body is their first classroom. Children actually learn about their bodies by touching their own bodies. And they learn by observing. Children are the great observers. If you want to know, if you want to know the kind of person you are, just watch your child and see what they say about you. Because they are the great mirrors, and they follow everything you say, and they follow everything that you do, and they follow everything you don't say. So the things that you don't say or say about sexuality, they they take that in and they follow those cues to help them understand about their own bodies. So when we choose to have conversations about children's bodies. And when, it becomes, when, we talk, when we talk about sexuality and children's bodies at the young age, we're talking about just knowing about, about their, just being very positive about their bodies and their own identities. Because as young as age three, children start developing their own sense of their identity. And they're trying to figure out what kind of person they want to be, even as young as three. And so I encourage... Is it the kind know, of person they want to be or the kind of person that they know they are? At three, they know whether they're a boy or a girl um, or how they identify. So if, if, we, if we choose to use the term boy-girl, that can be very confusing for a child who might actually identify as the opposite sex. So I always encourage 
parents and caregivers and educators, anybody who works with kids to to just be for kids as kids, especially in a you know, in a playground. I see that all the time where a parents and grandparents are like, Look at that boy in the hat or look at that girl in that pink dress. I encourage parents to try not to use those labels, mm-hmm. particularly around people they don't know and just refer to people as kids. And I've done that with my child since I have a four and a half year old and I've done it with my child since birth and I just like practice it over again, kid, 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 you know, kid, kid, kid. And now when my kid goes to a playground, but he always refers to everyone as kids and grown ups. There's no such thing as boy, girl, man, woman, but he identifies as a boy. And he, he knows he feels he's a boy and I feel like, okay, you know, he knows that you know, he he's he's okay with it's just about being comfortable with all different bodies so that children feel comfortable in their own bodies and, and don't feel confused. And and they always need our support. Absolutely. In knowing that we're okay with whoever they are. Of course, a hundred percent. I have a um a text message from Derek. Oh my god, Maureen. <laughs> How are you? I would like to know from your guest, what is the earliest she thinks that children be taught about consent and sexual education? Well, consent and sexual health education, it's sexual health education. So that's that's really about those five circles, the five topics that Maureen brought up. So the intimacy. So intimacy is about healthy relationships. For young kids, it's really about healthy relationships. And it's about not necessarily teaching. Like I would say, I can go into a, a grade four classroom and teach about healthy relationships, but healthy relationships, relationships can only be modeled. So it's really about analyzing and, and really take stock of the kind of relationships you're having with the people in your world that are intimate. So the partner or the other, or the other uh, co-caregiver in the family. How is the relationship in the house? Because really, like I said, those our kids are just watching everything we're doing. But how so about consent? Both- that that particular consent, like yeah. um, you know, saying what is appropriate or what isn't at what age? Because consent can start quite young, correct? Yeah. So consent is, um, you know, I teach this class in the preschool and, and early elementary about um, it's called body science and boundaries. It's really about boundaries. So I don't teach like kids about, you know, they don't really like you. T- if you tell a three-year-old like I'm, with, you know, I'm going to talk about consent right now, they're going to be like, what? What's that? You know. So I talk about boundaries, and boundaries really it starts with the boundaries you create with your kid, and that starts right away from the moment they're born. And of course, the first three months, it's you know, the child is super attached to you. But I, I always liken the sort of the um, the example, my own example of breastfeeding. So I set very clear boundaries of when it was okay to breastfeed and when it wasn't. So our, our education around consent started then. It is not okay to breastfeed at this time. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm done. I don't feel that, that this should continue. So I, I want you to stop breastfeeding. And, you know, for me, it was just like, oh, all of a sudden, for anybody who breastfeeds, probably can or has breastfed, maybe can relate to this a little bit, where um, breastfeeding can sometimes feel um, feelings come up. Sometimes there's traumatic feelings, or sometimes there's a um, um, just some different inadequacy for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah, inadequacy, or if you're in a you know depending on the environment you're in, whether you're in a park or whether you're in a shopping mall, or if you're at home, um, it feels different. So 
um, just like consent, it feels okay and not okay to engage in, in certain um, activities. It feels the same with breastfeeding. And so I always say that consent starts with the parent with things that feel okay on their bodies and things that don't. And be very honest and clear. And it's okay to not be okay with a child to not breastfeed. Um, and that's okay. That's your boundary. And that's how I taught it. So now, now that my child's four, um, and, I, and, I, and I teach this with all the preschoolers, is, you know, at this age, it's really about um, boundaries. And, and when somebody says, I don't, like, stop, like, you know, tickling. With, with young kids, it's about mm-hmm. tickling and um, maybe hitting or, you know, sort of those um, common more they're they're more reactive at this age they don't really mean to do things like things could be for accident right but we we also have a huge um sexual abuse problem in the world that's uh you know covert um but that but that still exists and i think this question is around um you know can how young should we say to kids listen this you you know consent is about saying yes but you know you you need to know what um, is appropriate, and this may this is inappropriate if somebody wants to touch you. Um, do we start that conversation very young? Yes. So um, the conversation looks like this: so anytime a child is in the care of another caregiver um, or um, you know in daycare, like there's. It just depends on the parent or the caregiver how they want to manage this. But in my family, um, what I do and what I have done uh, since he was young, since about two years old, um, I basically was like, um, you can touch your own body as much as you want. These are the places you can touch your body. And, you know, of course, like when they're two, you just kind of have to, like, no, no, you don't, you know, this is, uh, I see I see that you're, you're uh, touching your own body. That must feel good. Um, these are places you can touch your own body, and that becomes more more of a normal behavior around uh, four or five. Like as young, I mean, as young as infancy, all the way to four or five, self touch becomes kind of a um, an issue for. It feels like an issue for parents. So self touch is okay anywhere, except these are the places you can't, and always outside the home. It's you know never appropriate behavior. But when it comes to other people touching um, you, it's. I always say that it's okay. Um, it's never okay for somebody to to touch you in your private parts or anywhere that doesn't feel good and doesn't feel that feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's never okay for somebody to go onto your body or into your body. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when they do, then I start going into this is what you do. And um, in our family, it's something that we were we we will talk will discuss that with people who take care of our bodies. Hey, this is like. These are some of the healthy boundaries. When touching means no, it means no. We don't keep secrets in our family. Um, right. We, we, we don't have too much time left, Mary, and I want you to be able to get your um, your uh, work, how, how people can get onto that workshop. But I do have a quick call. Johnny from Winnipeg. Hello, Johnny. Hi, good uh, evening. Good evening. I just had a question about uh, uh, teaching uh, children about the history and about evolution before we teach them any sex education. I want to relate this to the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg, where all the staff was fired because they refused to show the, the children the uh, house of horrors that we have here, that you know all the torture and rape that was going on over the years. Mm-hmm. And we, we should teach children about uh, 
about the history of uh, our evolution, how humans evolved before we... Thank you, Johnny, so much for your comment. That's a great comment. We'll perhaps address that at another time because we are up against the clock. Mary, how can people register for the Approachable Adult Workshop? You can go on to my website, www.sacredlearningspace.ca. There's a booking form there to send me an email, or you can simply just email me at mary at sacredlearningspace.ca. Mary. And, uh, Thank, thank you so much, Mary. Really appreciate you coming on. And good luck with the workshops. Thank you very much, Maureen. Have a good evening. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. How are you all doing out there 13 months later into this pandemic. It's tough. It's tough for a lot of people, people who may have suffered with pre-existing conditions. Mental health is, or mental illness is going to, it looks like it's going to be the number one pre-existing condition soon. Um, so many people have lost their jobs. They're living in isolation, watching the news, which is so negative. There's just uh, hate crimes happening all over, left, right, and center, traumatizing people. And I had a patient this week who was a physician, and he actually said, you know, you've got to realize we are all slightly depressed. And I was really struck by that comment, and I thought, "Mm, he may not be all that wrong on that comment. He may not be off. So that's why I I invited my next guest to the program. He is a psychiatrist, and he is the medical director at Elumine Brain Centers for Excellence in North Vancouver, British Columbia. He is Dr. Karash Edelati. You've heard his voice on the program before. Good evening, Dr. Edelati. Hello, Maureen. How are you doing this evening? I'm slightly depressed. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's cheer you up. (laughs) You know, I mean, honestly, I have to say I can relate to that. All right. I am. I mean, let's let's face it. We all had these particular lives that we lived and and I feel terribly guilty and and selfish and self-centered, even complaining because I do on many levels feel very grateful for, you know, I I feel like one of the lucky ones. Um, And so you know, you're sort of battling these mixed emotions uh, where, you know, the pandemic has certainly affected my life in, in certain ways, um, but I'm not as bad off as somebody else. And maybe that's the Irish Catholic in me. You know, there's always going to be somebody worse off than you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Um, and so, you know, we can never have anything good either. Uh, but, um, you know, are, are we all uh, slightly depressed? Do we have this collective mental health that is under tremendous stress? Well, absolutely. Um, what has happened is globally, um, there's, a, there's a, I mean, I would consider it an international trauma uh-huh. um, because um, everyone has been affected by it. Um, and there is a lot of uh, normal uh, feelings that we experience, whether it's uh, being angry about our daily routines and, you know, the things that we care about having disappeared from our schedule, whether it's, um, the, you know, the up and down with uh, the pandemic news. Sometimes, you know, the news is good. So we're all very hopeful. The next moment, uh, things go south, and then we're all very hopeless. Um, there, And then, of course, you know, the guilt that you mentioned, because uh, I was just looking at the news in India mm-hmm. and uh, how, how difficult they have it down there. Um, and, you know, we, we complain uh, about our situation here. I think uh, some other countries are not as, as uh, blessed as we are here in North America. 
absolutely. But um, does that mean that we and I and I have this debate with a lot of my um, Catholic re- relatives? <laughs> um, does that mean that we that those who may you know seem to have it all, or and nobody has it all, but those who are are not as bad off as somebody else? People are dying in the streets in India. Okay, yes, my life is better, but does that mean I? You know, it's not right for me to feel sad for or for somebody else to feel sad because they may maybe have lost their job, but somebody else's, you know, mother lost their life. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, feelings are feelings, Um, whether, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, lost around us in the form of people dying, whether we have lost around us in terms of job loss, a sense of loss of security, even even the fear of infecting somebody close to us, mm-hmm. um, they can cause a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and uh, ultimately depression, right? Ultimately feeling low, uh, feeling uh, irritable. Um, the things that we would consider, uh, you know, symptoms of depression, for example, ruminating about, uh, well, what's going to happen? Um, and so it's completely normal and um, okay uh, that we in North America uh, feel that way. This is this is a global um, problem, no matter what the extent of it uh, for each individual. Absolutely. And I think it has affected each individual. And you mentioned um, the guilt. And, you know, there have been cases where somebody decided to have a birthday party and invite, you know, 10 people over and somebody there had COVID and it was transmitted and a bit of an outbreak and and somebody may have died. That's a tough thing. Uh, That's a tough cross to bear for the for the rest of one's life absolutely absolutely but uh, you know it could have happened to anybody um, nobody intended this to happen uh, nobody wanted to uh, get other people infected um, you know they, they they all thought they were safe uh, I'm not necessarily condoning it but I'm saying there's no point really going and looking at that and, and feeling guilty about it because, you know, we weren't really trying to get people infected. We're mm-hmm. just trying to um, get out of our isolation and meeting, you know, and, and meeting up with our families and friends, uh, which is part of our normal life that has completely now changed. Exactly. How about people with pre-existing mental illness who maybe had a diagnosis of bipolar or schizophrenia? How has this pandemic or this loneliness factor of the pandemic, how, um, what impact can that have on those people? Well, it, what, what it has done is it's, it's made things worse, um, simply because, um, you know, one of the um, primary ways of reaching out is um, reaching out to whether it's mental health care, uh, mental health professionals, and actually being in the presence of someone makes a, makes a big difference, right? Uh, for someone who already has a pre-existing mental health condition, uh, not being able to go out, not being able to reach out um, is a problem. Um, and, you know, and also the other thing is, of course, you know, we, we, we look at... Uh, some of the marginalized populations, not necessarily just people with pre-existing mental health conditions, but people who um, even before didn't have access, proper access to mental health care, um, that would uh, now become even more pronounced um, as they cannot uh, reach those services. 
And how about people who were mentally healthy um, and, you know, maybe suffered job loss and now are wondering how they're going to put food on the table week to week or also, you know, paying their rent is an exorbitant back rent that is due from, you know, thousands uh, of Canadians uh, who can't pay their rent and they're actually looking to um, give rent forgiveness, establish rent forgiveness programs. Um, You know, what does that do to a person's mental health? Well, the first thing that it creates is a feeling of hopelessness. Because uh, when you're looking at your outlook, uh, what you're seeing is that there is no way out for me. I'm, I'm financially unable to provide and unable to pay my rent. And uh, falling hopelessness is, of course, a feeling of helplessness. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you cannot go out there and if everything is under a lockdown or if everything, uh, you know, if the jobs are not as, as good as they used to be, um, and especially jobs that uh, required in-person attendance, uh, this is going to really wear down on um, those folks. Absolutely. And and speaking of the hopelessness, I mean, you, you talk about the news, you know, one day there's hope, uh, the vaccines are rolling, another day we don't have enough supply, another day people are fighting to be prioritized, another day it looks like July we'll, you know, be able to celebrate Canada Day and now it's September and, you know, I mean, with all due respect to the government, they do t- tend to take time, <laughs> don't really care that much about deadlines. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, is it, have we lost our sense of hope or are we exhausted? And does that exhaustion from, you know, hoping against hope that, you know, there, that this ends this global trauma, uh, as you describe, um, you know, how hard is it to hang on to that hope? Well, the biggest issue is uncertainty for Mm -hmm. a lot of people, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and like you said, News goes from um, positive to a negative within a 24-hour cycle. And so uh, people might start feeling hopeful a little bit, and then everything is back to uh, you know, being uh, completely hopeless. Uh-huh. And so this, this wears you down. I mean, uh, after a while, uh, you don't know which direction to actually turn your feelings to. Um, And so we need to find some solutions for that. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Karash Edelati, psychiatrist at LUMind Brain Centers, is my guest. Uh, Thanks for hanging on the line, Dr. Edelati. We do have a caller on the line, Harry from Edmonton, Alberta. Good evening, Harry. Hey, good evening, uh, Maureen and Dr. Kresh. Edelati. Dr. Edelati. Karash Edelati, yes. Good, good. <laughs> um, good to the best of my uh, abilities. I mean, uh, I like I told your uh, producer or whatever, I have a unique situation where uh, <laughs> every law in the, in the province of, of Canada is different. And it seems to basically, uh, for Alberta, dictate more so to the women as long as they qualify. I'm not trying to stereotype. But, my but what's your question? Right? My question is, is uh, I'm dealing with the situation where my wife had an affair, got engaged, and still married to me. Okay, and how are you doing with that? Well, <clears throat> I uh, at the time when it occurred, 
and COVID came in, and she was still living in the same house. And uh, lucky thing, the only thing that kept me going was that I was working mm-hmm. and my sanity, working. Mm-hmm. And then she finally left after a year because she said that 50% uh, of the home belongs to her. So anyway, uh, she left on October the 30th of 2020, and I haven't heard or uh, seen of her uh, for over a year. My lawyer said, just wait. And how are you feeling? That's got to be tough. I'm trying to move ahead. Uh, I'm uh, financially... uh, Able I, to, uh, I know feelings is the me. F word for men. Um, I'm sorry? Are you having a difficult time expressing your feelings? And Dr. Edelotti, how important is that for him, for Harry? Well, Harry, first of all, um, you know, acknowledging how you feel uh, about the, not just uh, the, what's going on with the pandemic, but your own feelings about your relationship, uh, that's critical. Uh, have you reached out to anybody uh, in terms of support yet? Uh, you know, I support myself through a higher power, and, you know, the good book said, till death do you part. Uh, I basically uh, look at every day that it's a new beginning. And, Absolutely. Uh, faith, uh, Harry, faith is a very important uh, element in, in any time we feel hopeless, uh, or, you know, the situation uh, feels like a loss. But also at the same time, uh, you know, some of those uh, elements of faith um, can be enhanced when we reach out to someone who can provide us with some support because um, having someone validating these feelings for you and not going through this journey alone is absolutely critical. Harry, did you feel um, angry or sad or depressed or down? or At the time... Mm-hmm. At the time, it was uh, very, very hard because the individual was was <laughs> in the same uh, under the same roof, and now that she's left, it did bring some comfort. And uh, my cat, <laughs> she, she always wants to talk when I'm talking on the phone, and she's she's comfort. You know, so I go to, like I said, I go to work on a, I'm lucky that I can provide and uh, make a difference. But uh, for the most part, I uh, have some family and they've been supportive too. Yeah, they've been supportive. And that's great. Harry, um, You luckily you have your job still. Dr. Edelotti, sometimes these uh, tragedies occur mm-hmm. one on top of another, like a triple-decker sandwich, um, you know, if... Uh, if but, uh, Harry lost his job, that would be something else. Yeah, well, you know, and, and you, know, you know, for Harry, Harry right now, what really matters is, is that uh, you build on that resilience. Um, and, you know, and there are many ways to uh, build on that resilience. Um, we also have another reasons- caller here. Just one second. Yeah. We only have about two minutes left. Um, yeah. Oh, sure. But you know what? It's on uh, another it's on another subject. Sorry. We'll yeah. um, we'll okay. grab that at the next um, yeah. half an hour. Um, sorry. Go ahead. So uh, important is to spend uh, some time on yourself, um, you know, physical activity, uh, being engaged, even if you don't have, uh, you know, in-person communication with friends and family, um, but it's via phone or online, 
having that support is critical, reaching out to a mental health professional just so that uh, there's someone to vent to other than your family and friends because, you know, they may be also quite um, uh, stricken by their own sense of loss and sometimes, you know, overwhelmed of what this pandemic has brought everybody. So um, critical to reach out um, to friends and family, but also a mental health professional, keeping a schedule for yourself to have like a nice routine so that um, you can focus on some of the goals that are important to you. Um, and, um, you know, also uh, being able to express your feelings. Uh, and this is a very difficult situation. So to find that hope uh, and maybe uh, some ways also reframing it for yourself and saying, okay, you know what, what, what is in this situation that uh, uh, my faith is giving me or, or making me acknowledge? Um, Thanks, Harry, um, for the question. Sorry, Dr. Edelotti, we're up against the clock here. People can reach you at lumind.com if you want to reach out for Dr. Edelotti's, uh, some help from Dr. Edelotti and his team for your brain excellence. Always appreciate you you coming on the show. Dr. Edelotti, we'll get you back. And Harry from Edmonton, thanks for the question. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Nothing sexy about this segment. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I do want to hear from you, and even you, Jim, who called me about vaccine hesitancy. Call back. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can always email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. That will be in confidence. This is a perfect uh, time for this particular segment. But you can also text me too. You can text me at one 399 if there's something you want to discuss in this last half hour, something I've forgotten about, something that's pressing on your mind, something that drives you crazy about me, um, anything you like, as long as it's halfway respectful <laughs> and uh, decent. But anyway, love to hear from you. Um, so, with this little segment, I had a gigantic yawn just before this segment, which I'm surprised about because I really didn't do that much today. Um, and so, usually, the reason I sleep so well is because I'm so active. Uh, but that's just me. It's always been me. I have a lot of energy. I don't like when I don't have a lot of energy because it definitely relates to how I sleep. And why is it important that we all sleep well, especially? women or those who identify as women, because poor sleep nearly doubles the risk of sexual dysfunction in women, according to a recent study. So if you are continuously getting a bad night's sleep, that could be tied to your unsatisfactory sex life, especially in older women. And so, but I think it's younger women as well, women who are busy raising children, sandwich generation, dealing with a pandemic, working inside and outside of the home, you know, laundry, laundry, laundry gets boring, boring, boring after a while, Um, but it still has to get done and it is exhausting. Housework is physical labor and I'm sorry, but we are still doing the lion's share of it. But, you know, you may be tired go to bed, hit the pillow, and you can't fall asleep. And so you have a a bad sleep. And so if you're sleeping poorly, you are twice as likely to report issues like 
lack of sexual interest or low desire or lack of pleasure. So, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, if you are having difficulty experiencing orgasms, it could be partially related to the fact that you are not sleeping well. The other part that it could be related to, especially if you are an older woman, and by that I mean like 37, um, <laughs> because that's when the estrogen receptors begin to decrease in the urogenital tract and in the clitoris. And the clitoris' sole purpose is for orgasm. And so it's important that you experience orgasm because that actually, orgasms help you to relax relax and help you to have a good sleep. But I have so many patients in my clinical practice who have these two issues. They're midlife women, um, kind of in that 40 to 65, 70 year old age bracket. Um, because by the time they're 75, they figured it out finally. Thank goodness. There is hope at the end of the tunnel there. Um, no, but many women will say, you know, it takes me longer to experience orgasm. And, um, you know, if we look at the female sexual response cycle, um, you know, it starts with it can start, linear model, depends on the type of relationship you have, where you are in that relationship. The desire may come first or it may not. Um, but then, then, then it's responsive. If you've been in the relationship for a little while, like like two weeks, no, I'm kidding, about, you know, like three or four years, you know, it can be kind of the same old, same old, old you again syndrome. And so it may be a little bit boring. And so responsive desire resonates with a lot of women, whereas you don't really feel like having sex, but you don't have any conflicts, any unresolved conflicts in the relationship. You have conflicts, of course, but none that are unresolved, you know, everything else is otherwise good in the relationship. Um, And so we call that responsive desire. So you engage, you accept your partner's advances, and you enjoy it and you think, why didn't I do that last night? We call that responsive desire. But this particular study is around this low sexual desire uh, or lack of sexual interest or pleasure. So you may not be experiencing orgasms. You may not be able to experience an orgasm if you are too tired. Um, And so this as compared with your sisters who are sleeping really well and having great orgasms. And that's why they're in a great mood the next day (laughs) because they've slept well and probably had an orgasm before they fell asleep. So this study was published Wednesday of last week in the Journal of the North American Menopause Society, which is great because we oftentimes forget to focus on sex when we talk about menopause. And and menopause has so many, uh, there are so many symptoms that women can experience during perimenopause the years leading up to menopause or menopause because estrogen is the hormone regulator of every single organ in the body and that's why it it affects you in so many different ways. But we're just going to go back to sleep. Um, This particular study, they measured the poor sleep using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index and that asked questions about, you know, your ability to fall asleep and your ability to stay asleep, your use of sleep medications or alcohol, daytime drowsiness and other things like that. So... Um, you know, good quality sleep is also linked to having more sexual activity. So, you know, I would encourage a little afternoon nap um, if you're not sleeping too well or if you're in a relationship where the sex isn't that frequent, then perhaps, you know, you focus on you getting sleep or your partner can support you in uh, getting that sleep. Sex is a great motivator, especially for men. Um, But, uh, you know, this is also a very important Um, subject for 
uh, doctors and healthcare providers to speak to about their patients. Because, you know, when you think of a tired, exhausted woman and you give her two choices, you give her a platter of sleep behind door number one. <laughs> And a platter of sex behind door number one. She is going for door behind door number two. She is going for door number one every single time. Let me tell you, um, because you know, you know, we we put sleep and food and sex in that order, and you know, oftentimes. Um, sex is the last, is the dessert. Um, and you may never get to the dessert. So this is a wake up call for any physicians, any healthcare practitioner, practitioners, any nurses out there who are educating, um, patients about, you know, you know, there's so many wellness coaches out there and lifestyle coaches for women in particular, but you know, they never really get down to the nitty gritty. And, you know, I would imagine that if somebody is getting adequate sleep and they are having frequent sex, then they're probably performing better in um, work as well. And they have a better work-life balance because I think that's what wellness coaches are all about, at least the ones that have been on uh, this program. But, you know, uh, physicians tend not to ask questions about a woman's sexual function. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And so it, this may be a, a nice way to, you know, open the bedroom door basically for your patient. So it's a whole lot easier to ask about sleep uh, and talk about the negative outcomes that are associated with poor sleep. One of them is also cardiovascular disease as well. And, you know, you see women during menopause, they may suffer with heart palpitations, uh, that they may need extensive workups for that. But, it, you know, if you asked about their sleep and how that was going, um, you know, that may in fact be tied to their heart palpitations or, or other cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, and then that can help lead to your next question because you go from the heart, which you think love, you know, not just pumping. <laughs> well, now we're thinking what well, rhymes pumping. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Um, but you know, you think of heart health and you think of love and then you think of, well, how is the romance, um, might be a way if you are shy, um, about if you're a physician or a healthcare provider who is shy about asking about sex. But it's not just women who experience sexual dysfunction because of poor sleep. Men can be affected as well. And there was a, a study done that found in 2009 that found that obstructive sleep apnea, which is a very serious sleep disorder where breathing repeatedly stops and starts, that that's linked to erectile dysfunction. Of course, you're not getting the oxygen in. And also more global sexual difficulties for men. And also that disrupted sleep can lead to a higher risk of erectile dysfunction. Sex is actually a great motivator for men. So if you're thinking you're somebody who suffers with obstructive sleep apnea, um, you know, you might want to get that uh, treated. Head on out to your doctor, speak to your doctor about it, get a referral to a, a sleep clinic. But uh, women also suffer obstructive sleep apnea, and that's also linked to sexual dysfunction in women, and as well as insomnia, which, you know, 
midlife, that's a very prime time for women to suffer from insomnia. They can't fall asleep. They can't stay asleep. They wake up in the middle of the night. They can't sleep. They can't sleep. A lot of women think that's normal. It is not normal. We just put up with it. Um, and so, you know, it's time to actually address these issues and enjoy life and have a good quality of life and enjoy the time that you're spending with family and with family, with that one person in this pandemic. Um, so, you know, having good sex is also related to better sleep. So, you know, one thing leads to another. So keep that in mind. Uh, good sleep leads to good sex and good sex uh, leads to good sleep. And I have a little text here from Derek who says, sex is also good exercise. You know what? It is. It just depends how much frolicking you're doing and how many acrobats you're doing in the bedroom. But you know what? You actually don't burn as much calor- as many calories as um, you would think that you would. I think it's about a 60 to 100 calories for a good romp in the hay. But I will say that just reminds me of body image. And so when I see patients in my clinical practice who are having low sexual desire, having infrequent, I mean, I see so many patients, they haven't had sex with their partners for 10 years, five years, eight years, 15 years. I'm telling you, um, it is years. And some people complain when it's been two weeks. Um, so there's no complaining, if it, but you know what? A couple times a week, that's probably, you know, on average, given whatever's going on in your life, that can sort of be, um, a decent average. Everybody wants to know, um, just how much sex is normal. Um, but I wanted to say that, um, uh, I wanted to say about body image because it's like the peeling back the layers of the onion, which I said earlier, you know, somebody comes in with, um, sexless marriage. There's often a number of conditions, uh, that are affecting the relationship as well. And I do want to say that sexual dysfunction isn't a dysfunction unless a woman is distressed about it. Okay. So if you are not distressed about it, um, then, that this is not a sexual dysfunction. Anyway, um, just think about all the things that are contributing your past, maybe any history of unwanted sexual abuse or unwanted sexual advances, um, or, you know, other types of trauma, or if there's financial issues going on, or if there's weight gain, body image issues, or you're not attracted to your partner any longer. Um, you know, there are things that can actually be done about that as well, but there are treatments for sexual distress, sexual dysfunction, low sexual desire, low sexual interest. You can go to my website if you want to learn a little bit more about that, maureenmcgrath.com. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.